Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. Today, we are answering all your questions. And I'm reading through this list, Emily, and we cannot make this stuff up. There are some unbelievable questions in here, and they're wide and varied. Uh, They're from all across the country, and I'm excited to answer them as best as we can. Most definitely. Love a good question, and you're right. We cannot even make these up ourselves. I mean, it's also, we're always in the thick of it. You know, our day in, day out, we are always in property and we forget how much when people, especially starting out, don't know. So today's episode is all about you guys. We're here to unpack your questions. Let's get into it. The first one from Tom Ibbotson, is Sydney property worth long-term investment, e.g. high cost but long-term steady growth? In short, I'll answer that first of all, Emily, because I'm <laughs> up this way. Uh, I would say if, if it's a house anywhere in the Sydney area, uh, whether that be in a uh, midway or, or even further out, 30, 40k out of the CBD, they're not making any more land. And if you've got a house with some land, uh, I would say, yes, it is going to be a, a good long-term investment. However, the problem with that is the low yield that you're coming in at. Because Sydney house prices have gone crazy in the last five, six, seven years, uh, the yields are quite low. So it probably does suit the higher income earner that can hold the running costs of such a property. But if if you think you can handle that and, and do your numbers on the way in, Tom, but yeah, I would, uh, I would say there's going to be some good for performance long term and people always ask me Emily which is the best place to buy in Australia and I've always said Bondi when you look at Bondi's returns it's just consistent growth whether it's a unit or house it just consistently performs year on year and for good reason but 99.5% of Australia's population can't afford to be there. That's very fair and it's uh, postcard perfect. I love Bondi as a place to visit. I can see why it's a place that people consider residing as well, you know, from both owning and renting. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that that's your go-to answer on that. Makes sense. Now, our next question is from Leonie. Leonie asks if we could please explain the ins and outs of claiming for renovation items, um, for example, floating floors, bathroom vanities, and she's tossing out whether to wait until it's an investment property like when she moves out of this current property or do it now and enjoy the nice floors while she is home for herself. Now first things firstly only unfortunately we are not accountants so um, explaining what is deductible and when doesn't necessarily fit in the realm of John and I uh, at some point in time we may get an accountant in to explain exactly because the timing of her currently living in the property versus it 
becoming an investment and what you can and can't claim. Um, what I would say though, Leone and anybody else listening that's keen on renovations, I'll get the episode number for you and put it in the show notes. But we did do, um, it must have been last season, I did an interview with a company called LVL Group and they are a renovation specialist and they actually talk through um, the best things to enhance if you're trying to get some growth in your property and add value to it. So that could be a good episode to refer back to that might help you in your decision making as to what to do. But in terms of what you can and can't claim and when, unfortunately, well, I certainly know I can't answer it and I don't think John's in the position to either. <laughs> Look, I'll have a quick crack at it, Emily. Why not? crack. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm not a qualified CPA. But one thing I would say is if it's your owner-occupier, you can't claim any running costs because it's not an income-producing asset. So that, that horse is bolted. Um, if it's an investment property, um, if you are doing generally what I'm told anyway, if you're doing improvements to the property – uh, it's usually added to the cost base uh, when you sell the property. Um, but if you're replacing items, then you can generally claim it in the year that uh, you are replacing it. All right. So um, they're the two sort of rules that I run by. But as you said, Emily, I, you hand that over to the accountant to to make sure they're, they're doing everything correctly. And And one other thing I've been told always is, if you're doing improvements or, or anything in the first year of owning the property, there's an argument from the ATO that that can be added to the, the cost base of the purchase, uh, not necessarily claimed in that first year. So hold out a little while as an investment until you've um, yeah passed that 12-month period. Hot tip. Love it. Now, next one comes in from Daryl Scott and Daryl asks, what are the pros and cons of low deposit home solutions? So one would assume Daryl's referring to a low barrier to entry on your deposit, might be a 5%, might be a 10% deposit to get into the market. The pros and cons, um, I think the most obvious one to me is that your repayments are going to be higher. If your de- deposit is lower, your repayments ongoing are going to be higher. Now, Immediately my mind goes to that's a con because ongoing costs is going to be higher, but it could be a pro if you can actually manage your expenses ongoing and that's feasible for you and actually getting in now on a low deposit is worthwhile for the higher repayments. I don't know if that how that sits with you, John, but that's my logic. Yeah, look, I'm just um, smiling thinking back to my first property purchase at the ripe old age of 21 for 64000 and I thought, wow, if that low deposit scheme was in back then, I could have bought that property with $3,000, um, how many we Whoa. would have bought back then if that was the case. So, yeah, it's, it's a really attractive offer uh, to get people into the market for the first time, usually a 5% deposit. Uh, yes, there are some, well, if you qualify for it, then there's no LMI. So that's usually the first question is how much LMI am I paying if I am leveraging higher? Um, so usually, yeah, if you're qualifying, you're not paying the LMI. So that's a massive advantage. Um, but as you said, Emily, the running costs are going to be higher. The loan is higher. So you've got to be able to manage those repayments and uh, be comfortable with that. And have some buffers up your sleeve for any interest rate rises. Um, Now, if it's a long-term hold, uh, like 8, 10, 12, 15 years, generally speaking, 
when your leverage is higher and you have to or want to sell it in the next one or two years, what you run the risk of is a, uh, a flattening or a falling market and actually selling it for less than what, you've, um, what your loan amount is, which is uh, catastrophic. So generally speaking, always buy well, but, uh, but know that you're leveraged a little bit higher. So your, your loan to value ratio is, is on the tipping point. And generally speaking, that's why banks only lend at, at 80% and um, charge you a fee, lenders mortgage insurance, if you're lending any higher than that. I don't think I've ever heard you use the word catastrophic before, so I'm taking that very seriously, um, that that it could be catastrophic if my property does drop in value if I'm only planning a short-term hold. And, I, and as a listener, I would be taking that quite seriously because it is, it's dangerous to be entering and exiting the market in a very short turnaround, um, you know, unless maybe you're flipping a house and you're doing major renovation that increases the value beyond um, the market doing its thing, but catastrophic. I'm going to note that down mentally. If I hear John say that, I'm going to take it seriously from now on. Uh, it Love was it. just a word. I must have heard it on the radio when I came here today. But uh, if, if you've got your buffers in your life and you've listened to all of our jargon uh, and, and you're cash heavy, you, you should never have to sell a property. So you, you let it do its thing and, and sell when you want to, not when you're forced to. But yeah, worst case scenario, because you are leveraged ties. So, yeah. 100%. Now, uh, the next question comes from Lucas Gordon. Lucas asks, I was wondering whether John, Emily or Glenn, sorry, Glenn, you've been left out on this one, have ever heard of using equity in in an investment property um, being accessed to pay down your primary place of residence loan, so your owner-occupier loan, if this is a legit option, legit being the key word, and whether the investment property equity becomes tax deductible. Wow, Lucas, you sound very savvy and very in the know. Um, I've never heard of this. John, have you? <laughs> Fortunately or unfortunately, I have. Um, okay. <laughs> now, there's a couple of things there, Lucas. Uh, well done for thinking outside the box. I, th- I think we need to address a couple of things. At the moment with lending, uh, investment lending is generally higher interest rate than owner-occupied lending, right? So let's say high level that investment lending is 2.5% and um, owner-occupied lending is 2%. So you've got a half a percent difference there. So Lucas is saying, I want to pull out some equity in my investment property, which is an investment loan at 2.5%. I'm taking a hundred grand at two and a half percent, and then I'm going to pay it down. Uh, my owner-occupied debt, which is being charged at two percent. So, what is the positives of that? Well, I can't see too many because a it's being it's the ATO or the accountants look at what is this money being used for and the sole purpose of this is to pay down non-deductible debt right so the accounting aspect of it or the tax deductibility of it will be nil right so we've got to think about what the positives of of doing such a thing would would be and I can't think of too many off the top of my head can you? Um, not particularly. And more my concern is like, is it legit? Because I think like if it was legit, 
feel like I would have heard about it before now uh, would be more common practice. And if it was favorable, I feel like that's something that people would do like on the flip side, you know, pulling equity out of your primary place of residence to go and buy an investment property is a very known process. Like people do know about that. Whereas this, I don't know, it sounds a little bit black market. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like usually when it is black market, it's, it's for an advantage, but I I can't see an advantage in, in doing this if, if I'm reading this correctly. No, I, I agree. So I think Lucas, the answer to your question is um, don't. It's not. Doesn't look like it's tax deductible because it's being put to something that is not like your own home isn't. There are payments, but yeah, not sure that we we're um, in full favour of that strategy. We're not sure of the upside. So we look. We always love to have an upside if we're going down a path. So yeah, don't think that quite meets it, but. Thank you for putting your question forward because I certainly learned something that I didn't know existed. (laughs) (laughs) Alicia Francis says, things to consider or look for in a property, in brackets other than location, if looking to purchase second home as an investment with future plan to knock over and build dream home, cash flow or future capital growth strategy post knockover. Right. I've actually got a a client where working with who is doing is basically doing this. It's not a straight out investment. It will be for a period of time, but they're looking to buy something to knock over um, and build their dream home. Now, one of the main factors that has become apparent through this process is the existing property needs to be rentable. They can't, they actually cannot afford to just sit on this property, this knockdown in the interim while they go through the process of um, getting another year worth of financials together to go forward for another loan um, in terms of construction loan, um, going through council planning and permits. So, the livability and rentability of the property is certainly an attribute that you would need to be looking at um, if your intention is to buy a property that's effectively a knockdown rebuild. Um, I know Alicia's stated the obvious, like other than location, location is definitely key. Uh, But yeah, I think from a cash flow perspective, you need to have it rented so that you can have assistance with those mortgage repayments um, that you're putting forward. Um, And then I'd also really be looking at a tight timeframe of, uh, without rushing, but the construction period, because you're basically just sitting on something that you're waiting to be able to move into. If that's going to have massive delays, that could really impact your financial situation. Yeah, for sure. So I'm taking it as though Alicia's living in their owner occupier at the moment. So it's up to them as to how long they stay there. So hopefully the time is not too much of an issue. They can just decide to do it whenever they want and and build when they want, knowing that they're, they're still living in their own rock, but um, there would be some complexities if they're going to sell that property in order to build their own rock uh, or their dream home. The, the one thing that underpins all of this, I think, Alicia, is yeah, cash flow is important, but um, knowing that you, you're buying what's right for you for the next 20 years because it is your dream home right? Is the block big enough? Um, you, you spoke about location being important and that's, that's an obvious one, but, but knowing uh, what you can build on it before you actually buy that property. So if you're wanting to knock it over, generally speaking, it's in a pretty ordinary condition to begin with. So 
as you mentioned, Emily, the rents are probably going to be pretty low. And if it's a bigger block because it's a dream home location, then again, the yields are going to be even lower because you're paying more for the land value. So I think taking into account cost of build, being able to build what you want on it, don't just go and buy a block thinking that you'll be able to build what you want and finding out there's some council covenants that stop it or it's in a flood zone or it's bushfire or whatever. Um, so, so doing that sort of due diligence before you actually um, purchase that block. Yeah, definitely agree with that. Um, makes sense to know what you can build on it, where the easements are, what the orientation is. Um, you know, a good architect and builder can work around that to maximise uh, natural light and things, but being across it is always an advantage. Now, she may be thinking also, what would you do with your, your cash? How would you set up the finance structure? So mm. it's going to be an investment first. Um, so... You could go the interest-only path first because it is an investment and you can claim the running costs of it and focus on paying down your principal place that you're currently in. However, if you're turning that into an investment, you really want to focus on paying down your future dream home, don't you? Right. So if it's only going to be a short term, like as in maybe two or three years, as an investment before it becomes your dream home, I wouldn't be too fussed about sort of paying down too much, but just uh, just knowing that you you're cash heavy when you build, because the last thing you want to do is is run out of cash when you're trying to to finance a build. Yeah, not ideal. You want a complete house, not a half done, <laughs> not a half done job. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more of your questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We are back and I'm going to throw this question to John because I just read over it and I said to John, I don't even know what that means. So I'm about to learn something too. Um, Matt Packer has asked, I would love to hear from John and Emily uh, about vendors, finance and lease options if they think it is still relevant in our day and age and maybe for John to even share some experiences, if any. I love how it's actually pointed at you. So John, this is your time to shine. (laughs) Good question, Matt. 
Um, now, it is relevant in our day and age. It's, it's creative thinking. It's maybe for people that haven't got the deposit they need or haven't got the lending or servicing that they, they need to buy the property that they want. So it's most common when people are renting a place and thinking to themselves, you know what, we could actually see ourselves owning this property. We love the location. We love the, the property or the layout. We, we could do this and that to it to improve it and, and call it our own because at the moment we're, we're paying the landlord rent. So they go to the owner and say, owner, can we buy this thing? But we haven't got any money. generally speaking (laughs) so the uh the the vendor says or the owner says uh look i'll i'll sell this property to you we'll uh, we'll agree on the price now which might be a little bit inflated because it's taking into account the fact that you won't own it yet Uh, but you'll do what we call a a rent to buy uh where you you'll continue to pay the the landlord the rent but you'll pay them a little bit more that forms or starts to form the deposit for the property um, that you'll purchase. But knowing that you've already agreed on a price with the vendor and you've got a, a legal document that, that represents all of this, you sign off on it and, uh, and, and away you go. So that's, um, that's a common, well, it's a rent to buy strategy, but you're, you're basically the, the vendors um, agreeing to sell, to sell in the property to you uh, whether you're a tenant or not doesn't matter, um, but if if you're not the tenant, you can actually again get vendor finance if you know the vendor directly, and in which case, use why that happens is because again you can't get money from the bank for some reason or another. So the vendor says, "Look, I'll shout you five hundred thousand. Uh, I'll charge you maybe a premium on that. It might be four percent interest instead of three but you get to own the home today and live in it today uh, and you can pay that back over time. So the vendor still has a, a caveat over that property, which is a, a, a legal binding that says you can't sell that property until I get my $500,000 back. So yeah, it's, it's strategic um, investing or, or property purchasing that is not sort of mainstream um, because there's a few complexities to it, but where there's a will, there's a way, and and that's what Matt's referring to, generally speaking. Makes sense, and I can see why that also would probably tie into someone who's renting a place that they want to, you know, own themselves. If it's if you're already in it and you're already paying rent, and you know the the owner, then yeah, why not? Sounds like an easy pathway in. Now we have more questions. We've got plenty more questions actually, uh, but the next question comes from Nathan Paul. And Nathan asks, do I get into the market now with a two-bedroom apartment in Sydney to then become an investment property and buy a house later? So sort of getting in and then converting and and upsizing by the sounds of it or save it for an extra year for a lifelong ownership of a townhouse. And this is the debate that so many people have and I think we've we've gone through a similar example um, potentially in a previous Q&A but it really is – and actually, you know what? I think this is in one of our Would You Rather um, yes. episodes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually can't remember what I said. Yeah. Well, actually, I did a clarity call this morning with someone. Uh, now, they're living in Melbourne, your neck of the woods, Emily, and they are wanting to buy potentially a house in uh, – sorry, not a house, a unit in Brunswick East. 
beautiful part of town. And we looked at the growth of units versus houses in Brunswick East for the past nine years. And houses, Emily can see my hand, um, took off and have basically doubled in that period. And you can check for yourself on realestate.com. Units have gone up like 60,000, 70,000 in that same time frame. So, um, Nathan, not sure if this answers your question, but the thing to be wary of in this is we go and buy that two-bedroom apartment and it doesn't get the growth of other properties in the area, like a townhouse or a house, and then you go and try and upgrade into that um, bigger dwelling and find that we're we've got a shortfall. So I would, look, not financial advice, but I'd almost maybe save an extra year if you know that that's going to get you a townhouse. Yeah, and I think the missing element to this is um, that if you do buy well with your townhouse, you can, you know, over time grow equity in that and then go forward for an investment property as your secondary purchase. Um, So you're not actually losing out on owning two, ultimately having two properties, you know, one to live in and one to have as an investment. It's just a different way around it. Mm. Um, And yeah, I think probably the fact that he has said a a townhouse, because I feel like um, a lot of people are debating whether they should try and save to bridge the gap between the difference of an apartment versus a house on land. Now, to me, that's a very big stepping stone. The middle ground being a townhouse, which will have an element of land component to it, is good. Mm. Um, And I think it's probably doable in a year, but more generally, try to, you know, out-save the market, like the way that it's running in a hot market can can be tricky. Yeah, that's right. And you've really got to know your cash savings ability, don't you, to know that you can fast-track that yeah, definitely. So we've got another question along almost similar lines of this person that already is owning a property. So Kimberly says that she is interested in buying a second property in a different state, um, currently owns a two-bedroom in uh, Melbourne, a two-bedroom unit about 70 metres from the beach, good spot. Uh but we have started a family and will outgrow this space. We're trying to work out if we renovate the unit and stay a little bit longer, renovate and sell or don't renovate and just rent it out or just sell and move. Oh, my gosh, so many options. Um, <laughs> Give me a headache. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of choice there. So presumably um, the opening line of this saying, interested in buying a property, um, a second property in a different state, I assume that's an investment property. I assume, for the purpose of yeah, answering the question. Um, I feel like, you, to me, for me, I just want to get into that second property as soon as I possibly could uh, if I could maintain my lifestyle where I am. And I don't know if that might mean a mini renovation to bring that unit up to speed for them to be livable, but I don't know I'd put all my eggs in renovating the current one that they've got. I don't know. Well, I feel there's two parts to this. We want to buy a second property in a different state, but we also are outgrowing our existing apartment or unit. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we need to fix two things, do we? I think so. <laughs> right. Bit of clarity. If only we could call Kimberly up. <laughs> <laughs> so just just go and buy that second property. Um, yes. Ideally, we don't want to sell property unless we have to. Um, or sorry, so I shouldn't say have to. I should should say want to. 
Um, if we can renovate it and that gives us an extra five years in the property, then great. Um, but is that our long-term home? And, and if not, where is that and how much money do we need to, to get into that particular property? Um, so, yeah, there's so many complexities to this. But I think if we can renovate and stay longer for lifestyle, that's that's a great outcome because you, you're 70 metres from the beach. Yeah, I think I'm just going to call it and say I think Kimberley might need a clarity call. <laughs> just going to put it out there. I think there's a lot of options floating around of possibility. Um, Kimberley, if you haven't heard before, um, John does do clarity calls. And for anyone else who's in a bit of a predicament, the amount of people I tell to go and book one in with you, John, you're probably like, oh, my God, there's so many of them. <laughs> um, but uh, it is a worthwhile exercise. If you do have these sorts of questions that are – um, specific to you and your circumstances of, you know, what if and should I do this, should I do that, a clarity call with John is the way to go. There'll be a link in the show notes to be able to book one. Now, I think rounding out this episode, we've got time for one more question. I was just trying to pick like the best one because there's quite a few good ones sitting on the list. But I think we'll go with Jake Earl's question. And Jake says, I currently own a house with my parents and sister. What should I do next? Either use the equity and continue to build a portfolio with them while saving for my own home or start looking to build my individual portfolio. Ooh, interesting one. Yes. What are your thoughts? Jake, uh, that's a really good question. I personally, like I love joint ventures and it's great. It's a great way to enter the market maybe for the first time or go and invest for a second, third, fifth time if you haven't got the the deposits or the servicing yourself. So well done on taking that leap of faith with your family. Um, What to do next? Now, love to get a broker's thoughts on this because depending on the lending structure you've got, some, some lenders they take joint ventures as you having 50% or in this case 33% of the ownership but 100% of the debt. Mm. Now that doesn't look good for servicing when you go to try and find a, another property or another loan. So you'd, uh, uh, that would be your first protocol is to see how much you could, you could borrow. Um, presuming you've got that sorted, go and find a lender that that maximises your your lending ability there. Um, I would try and run your own portfolio. Less less complications, uh, less reliance on variables that are out of your control, i.e. your sister says, I want to get married or um, new partner says, we should sell that because we want to buy our own home now. Uh, I think, yeah, in an ideal world, you want to go on your your own journey, your own path, but hopefully this has been a good stepping stone to allow you to do that individually. If you can't do it individually, then yeah, progression is better than nothing. So you might look to a, to a second JV with, uh, with your family. What do you think? Yeah, Emily? I'd agree. I, I echo what you're saying. I think um, if you can, you know, uh, if you've got the serviceability to start building your own out, I think 
it's been a good stepping stone to get into something on a joint venture basis to begin with. And then next step really uh, would be to start sourcing your own and, and um, owning your own investments. Um, that would be my words of wisdom on that one. But um, I mean, it also depends on comfort levels too, doesn't it? If you've been through the process once in a joint venture, uh, you might feel that that's an ongoing thing that you want to keep keep going with. So yeah. So John, that brings us to the end of our questions for today. And people are very good now at submitting questions because I feel like we've drilled it into them. If you've got a question, ask it, tag us, hashtag it. One thing if I could ask if you're willing and able to do if you're a listener of the podcast and and particularly for regular listeners because we want to deliver on what you are after, if there are any uh expert guests that you would like us to get in on a particular topic, um, a particular profession, please let us know. We always have plenty of Q&A to cover off. We could be literally, we could fill a whole series full of Q&A, which we love doing and we will continue to do. But we also want to, you know, chop and change it up a little bit by having an expert every now and again. Um, that you would like to hear from. So you don't even have to know who the expert might be, maybe just their title, maybe it's an accountant, maybe it's an interior designer, maybe it's um, a tax depreciation specialist, any of those, just let us know, put it in the Facebook group and John and I will endeavour to pull upon our networks and bring in someone for you. Totally. All right, Emily, it's been a pleasure. As always, John, until next week, uh, we'll speak with you soon. Okay, bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And I've created the Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.